Joshua chapter 6. If you've not got a Bible, then the scriptures will appear behind me, I hope, and uh, it's a really intriguing story. Before we get there, one of the things that we've been working at and, and trying to do over the last few months is hear more South stories, uh, stories from our church community, and, um, and because of the nature of our church, we always have a number of people, we're just the nature of our culture, we have a number of people away each Sunday, and just because, but our congregation is around about 300, and so we thought, you know what, there's got to be some really great stories in that. So Wendy uh, approaches, welcomes, harasses, gently encourages people to uh, share their stories. And so here are the instructions I asked Wendy to give to the people. Three minutes. Three minutes, that's all you get. And they're like, well, that doesn't seem right. Three minutes. And here's the reason why. And, And there's a reason why I'm sharing it now. Sometimes you only get three minutes. Sometimes you only get two minutes to talk to somebody about why you need Jesus Christ in your life. And, and, the, and the framework that I have in my mind was, imagine if you were to never meet that person again, and I know this is awfully, oh gosh, this is a bit depressing. Oh, kids, you're dismissed. Sorry, I just remembered. Glowing door, kids, you can, you can go. I think they probably already are. Um, uh, I know this is a little bit depressing to say this, but imagine that person you hear later on actually, actually passed away. You had three minutes. You don't get 15, 20 minutes to pull out a long testimony. And, and you know what? I'm not criticizing anybody who's spent that long on the pulpit sharing their story. They've been brilliant. But over the summer, that's what we're pushing for. You get three minutes. I'm saying that because when I first started to preach, I had a wonderful preaching mentor who was a phenomenal preacher. Still, I believe, the best preacher I've heard um, ever. And he said this, and I don't think it was his quote. He says, you've got to treat every sermon like it's the last one you're ever going to preach. He said, because you just don't know who's listening. And you don't know what God's plan is. This morning's sermon is that for me. Now, for those of you who know, come to church regularly, you know that I'm going to go on my sabbatical uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of church today. I, I'm away, very happy to be able to be given this gift from the church to go and spend 12 weeks uh, just refreshing. And, and it's, it's so good to proactively be able to do that. Um, and so I was like, Lord, I, I really want a message that, like, uh, if this was going to be my last sermon, what would it be that I'd want people to know? And I started studying the next section of Joshua, and it was just coming so alive to me that I realized this was it. This, is, this really encompasses what I would say. I'd really want people to know. I really want people to know that if this is the last thing you ever hear me say, I want this to resonate in your minds and your hearts and your spirits and stick in your brain, keep you awake at night, get you up early in the morning just so you can seek out this God. That's what I want this last sermon to be, apart from I get a little bit longer than three minutes because I get to decide these things, I guess. But uh, let's, look at, let's look at a scripture. This is Joshua chapter 6, verse 16 to 1, apparently. Uh, that, that's not correct. You'll find it in Joshua 6. <laughs> at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. That's the Jericho. We've talked a lot about Jericho over the last few weeks. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. What's fascinating about this scripture is that everything culminates on this scripture. Every lead up that we've had about Jericho's walls coming down is all summed up in two, two verses. It's almost like 
It's job done. The job had already been done as far as God's concerned. He doesn't elaborate. But really, what we see in this verse is victory. We see victory. We see a reflection of a great deal of courage, a great deal of obedience. All those things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, we can see reflected, culminating in this promise that God has given. Unbelievable courage by a people who were uneducated, had no military experience really to speak of, were not technical, they weren't, they weren't, you know, they weren't this amazing army, they just showed obedience and they had extreme courage. One of the most uh, in amazing movies I've seen over the last few years, and I'm sure some of you have seen it, and it is R-rated. And you're going, wow, is that even allowed as a pastor? Isn't that part of your job description to watch R-rated movies? But I think we always kind of go, it's okay as long as it's got something factual history or, or something to do with war. And, and that really does, uh, this, this movie that I'm about to explain to you was really impactful it was a little bit like the Braveheart in the 90s is the, the hacksaw for preachers. The hacksaw ridge was it in the 2010s. Like every preacher was preaching on Braveheart in the 90s, including this one. And so hacksaw ridge was a little bit like that for me. It was a very impactful, uh, a very impactful movie and very, very true to the real story. And the story surrounds this gentleman, Desmond Doss, young man, good looking fella. Um, he was a very devoted Christian. And I'm sure many of you know the story. And I'd encourage you to watch the movie, but be warned. It's pretty graphic when it comes to uh, the military. And, and, but very, very true. I checked, I fact-checked it, and it's very close to the actual story. And Desmond Doss was a committed Christian, and he was committed to nonviolence. He was very committed to uh, the belief that they should not carry any weapon in war. So I won't tell you the whole story, but essentially he joins the medical corps. But even the medical corps at that time were required to do basic training that involved them firing a weapon, and he refused. He didn't even want to touch a weapon. And he got a great deal of criticism, almost got court-martialed. They wanted to throw him out, put him in jail. He even got death threats from his own buddies in the army. One of them actually said to him that when you're on the front line, I'm going to shoot you. That's how hated he was, but he stuck with his belief. He was dogmatic in his belief that he was not going to touch a weapon. He believed that he could serve Jesus on the front line by helping and serving others. And so he believed, he was very passionate about the idea of standing up for right and wrong in the, in, in the war. He wanted to go on the front lines. He believed that's where God had called him, but he was committed to not even touch a weapon. And so, as many of you know, he, he ended up being uh, part of a very famous, uh, this is actually Desmond Doss right at the top there, of what's now what they called Hacksaw Ridge. And Hacksaw Ridge was a 250, 300-foot high ridge that was a full length of an area that they had to get up and over to attack uh, then the, the, the Japanese in Okinawa. And so, he actually was one of the very few men who, who volunteered to build uh, the, uh, the, uh, the ladder, the rope ladder to get up on the ridge. Cut a very long story short, if you actually read the account of the, of the, uh, of the assault on the Japanese, it's absolutely horrendous. It's as bad as war gets. I mean, you're talking about people being hacked up, wading through blood and mud, dead bodies and everything. And, and this young man, Desmond Doss, committed himself to saving people, to being a medic. And medics, as far as the enemy was concerned, were targets. They were number one targets, officers and medics. 
because they knew, the enemy knew, that if you take out the medics, then the others are likely to die much quicker. So he took a tremendous risk even being there. When everybody else had withdrawn, he stayed by himself on the top of this area on the way to the enemy. The enemy just still firing and he committed himself to saving as many men as he possibly could, lowering them by rope down the side of this cliff. His constant prayer was this, Lord, please help me get more and more, just one more, just one more, just one more. By the end, he spent 12 hours, 12 hours by himself, saving as many men as he could, lowering them by rope, even some Japanese, which really messed the thinking up of the soldiers as a a Japanese officer appeared at their feet by rope because he was like, I'm just going to save as many as I can. He said he saved about 50. The actual number is close to 100. So they agreed on 75. After 12 hours, that's roughly one man every 10 minutes. By the end, he had 17 pieces of shrapnel in his body, a sniper's bullet in his arm that he actually struggled with for the rest of his life. Where does that kind of courage come from? He was a devoted Christian, so much so that when they actually went on their second assault, and this is true, this is the one thing I thought, really, did this actually happen? The whole company waited, they waited until Desmond Doss had finished reading his Bible before they went on their assault. That's a fact. Where does that courage come from? Can I tell you, that kind of courage does not come from the self-help section in chapters. It doesn't come from CDs doesn't come from just repeating the same mantra over, I can do this, I'm fearless, I'm strong. And, because that just doesn't work in situations like that. This man is commonly known as the greatest war hero America has ever seen, and he never, ever touched a weapon. Where does that courage come from? While the people of Israel, this is Joshua chapter 5, just before the assault on Jericho, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Jumping ahead a little bit in Joshua 5. When Joshua, I apologize that, again, it's a little bit rough at the corner there. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. See, Haxel Ridge is actually quite an interesting picture when it comes to the Christian life. Because we've been given a very, very clear calling, and it's very countercultural. It is not something that is particularly popular, just like Desmond Doss. It's not something that is adopted. It's not something that people would immediately run to. It's something that is criticized even violently. His stance was violently opposed, not only by the enemy, but by his own people. And as Christians, we're called to live lives in such a way where we expect violent opposition in different ways. Now, we're very grateful we live in a country where that doesn't result in death. But can I tell you, there are more martyrs today for the Christian belief than at any other time in history. There are people literally dying for this faith. 
Where does that courage come from? The answer, I believe, is in these verses. And I say that not uh, in a... In a uh, um, I, I'm very serious about this. Remember what I said, if this was my last sermon. I'm very, very serious. I believe that the answer for that kind of courage, that kind of countercultural living, where we don't get pulled into what the culture says is right, is found in these verses. So what we're going to do is very quickly, I want to go through this story, and then I want to pull out two points. So I normally go quite fast. I'm just going to kind of change up gear just to make it a little bit quicker. So I want to show you a couple of things as a foundation before I show you the big aha moments, okay? So the first thing is this. I want you to notice something when Joshua was by Jericho. Understand, please, at this point, Joshua was likely to be about 80 years old. 80, okay? Now, in our culture, 80 would be seen as advanced in age. It's not something, not an age you would necessarily expect was a, a leader of armies. But Joshua had tremendous tenacity. And we know that by reading this verse. Because look what it says. Joshua was by Jericho. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. He looked up and saw Jericho. Common commentary to say that he was likely sat there as a good general of an army would, assessing the situation. Probably remembering the time when him and Caleb went in and first saw Jericho. And that's a whole other story that I mentioned right at the beginning of this series. He sat there considering, and he's bound to be thinking, how is this going to work? Look at it. Look at how impossible it is. How is this going to happen? Where are we going to find the courage? Where are we going to find the skill? Where are we going to find all that we need to take down this seemingly impossible obstruction in front of us? And God's answer is really interesting. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. So what does Joshua do? This tenacious wise, seasoned man of God, what's he do? I love this. And Joshua went to him. Now we read that and go, oh, you know, he just went up to him. No big deal. That word went actually means challenged him. He got into his face is what it means. That Joshua, in his eight-year-old tenacity, leader of the army of Israel, gets up into the face of what must have been an intimidating and scary-looking guy. For reasons we're going to find out in a minute. He's like, gets right into him and asks this question. Are you for us or are you against us? <laughs> I love that. That is bravery. That is courage. And this is what Joshua is basically saying. Are you going to fight with me or against me? He's challenging him. Are you for us or are you against us? Because if you're not for us, you're against us. And if you're against me... Buckle up. Buckle up. Because if you're against us, there's no impartiality. There's no standby. There's no kind of, I'm just going to stand on the sides. And that is a whole preach, by the way. Are you for us or are you against us? Are you fighting for me or are you fighting against me? Because there's no middle ground. And then the answer, to me, is one of the most intriguing verses in the whole of Scripture. No. Are you for us or against us? No. No, I, I don't know if you understand the question. Are you A, for us, or B, against us? C, no. See, I remember taking multiple choice questions, and I hated those quizzes. And I remember, sorry, mum, 
I remember going through one quiz going, I've got no idea, so I actually just drew a nice pattern, because those of you who know me well enough, I, I like graphics, so I just drew a nice <laughs> graphic-y pattern. <laughs> Didn't do very well. I was just making up my own answers. See, see, this guy is going, no, 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 you don't know, for or against, no. And so many commentaries, or many Christians, sorry, would look at this and go, well, he's neither for you or nor, or nor is he against you. That's not actually the translation. So listen to this, this is important. You remember that time as a parent when your kid comes bouncing up to you and asks you a question? Can I do this? I, I want to go here uh, and, and do this and do this, or can I do this? No, it's neither. It's the wrong question. No, you're asking the wrong question, Joshua. It's not a no, I'm neither. It's no, this, you're asking the wrong question to the wrong guy. That's the framework that we're looking at. Because I am the commander of the arm of the Lord. Now I have come. Now I have come. I've not come to take sides, Joshua. I've come to take charge. Wow. That landed in me so hard this week. What's Joshua's response? Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So the challenge ends because he's just realized who it is he's dealing with. He's just realized he's asked a question to a man, the wrong question, to the wrong man. And his response is to hit the deck and to immediately start worshipping him. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What does all this mean? And what does it have to do with courage? Let me just tell you just a couple of statements to frame the next section is this. This, this moment is the start of the offensive against Jericho. It's the start of the offensive. It's the start of the fight. And the courage to follow through starts at this point for Joshua because this is Joshua's burning bush moment. This is Joshua's burning bush. And there are a lot of connections between the two stories if you actually read them. This is his moment. This is where courage floods in. This is where the fight against Jericho starts at this moment. And it really hinges on this one statement. Now I have come. Now I have come. See, when you read the scripture, it actually says it was an angel, the angel of the Lord's army. And, and angels get a little bit of a periphery role in the scriptures. We love angels. We think angels are awesome. We, you know, we sell cards with angels on the front, especially at Christmas. I've already talked about the flying naked baby angels with harps. You know, even a periphery look at what angels are in the scriptures. They are not that. They are warriors, they're messengers, the scriptures say. But even so, they're kind of, not sidelined, they're just on the edge because they are, uh, forgive me, and I know this room is full of them, uh, so, you know, I'm saying this guardedly, but they're, they're, they're not to be worshipped. They're messengers. In fact, every time in the scripture that somebody starts worshipping an angel, you can look at it in Revelation with John, John the angel appears before John. John hits the deck and starts worshipping. The angel tells him to get up, stop worshipping me. Worship God. See, angels don't get worshipped, God does. So here's how we know this isn't any ordinary angel, because the angel not only, says, uh, only allows, not only allows Joshua to worship him, he steps it up. Hey, worshipper take your sandals off. So he raises the bar even higher. We know this isn't any normal angel because this angel is the God incarnate. All through the Old Testament, 
All through the Old Testament, there's, uh, there's, there are events, and they're called the, uh, theophanies, where, where the angel of the Lord's army is Jesus appearing. It, it happened to Abraham. It happened to Moses in the bush. It happened to Samson. And it's interesting, in Moses' burning bush, take your sandals off. When he appeared to Samson's parents, they hit the ground. And then Jesus himself refers to this in Matthew as him being the commander of the Lord's army, being the angel of the Lord. This, friends is God incarnate, and his name is Jesus. And he carries a sword just like he does in Revelation. So you can imagine seconds, milliseconds, after Joshua has got into the face of Jesus and said, see, you're for us or against us, and Jesus goes, no, wrong question. The horror... <laughs> that must have flooded into this wizened, tenacious, brave old man as he hits the deck. And the first words that come out of his mouth is basically, command me. Command me. Not, hey, Jesus, join me. Hey, commander of the Lord's army, can you help me out? It's, what do you want me to do? In those two words, command me, or you have the whole of the Christian life summed up. That is worship. I have come. Jesus is here. What do you want me to do? Not do I want, not, oh gosh, not do I want you to do something for me. What do you want me to do for you? That's his first response. Because the God incarnate is here. You have come. What do you want of me, Lord? You see, through Jesus in the New Testament, we find out that, and friends, if you are here and you're just thinking through Christianity, you're not sure about religion, you're not sure about, maybe you're a bit of a skeptic, as am I and have been for many, many years, but I keep on going to the evidence and I see evidence after evidence after evidence. But let me tell you this, and I want to be, this is the most loving thing. Remember, imagine this is my last sermon. The most loving thing that I can tell you is this. The most loving thing is this. The only way into the presence of God is through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And, I'm merging two scriptures, every knee will bow. You see, if Jesus was to come into this room right now, trust me, every knee will bow. Everybody would hit the deck. There would be nobody stood there in their courage in the face of Jesus. There would be instant worship What do you want of me, Lord? I will do anything. Because that's what it would be like. In fact, me trying to explain this is really like trying to put out a volcano by spitting in it. I have got no chance of trying to give you, frame with my words, what it would be like if the presence of God in and through Jesus entered this room. Which friends, Christian friends, Be encouraged, there will be a day that comes where every knee will bow. Even those who refuse to bow today, they will bow one day. Now, we don't stand there arrogantly going, yeah, Jesus, see? Trust me, you're going to be on your face as well. You're going to be on your face. Because all through the scriptures, that's what we see. Now, I have come. The only way to God is... See, through Jesus, we get to relate to God. Through Jesus, don't let that phrase go by. Through Jesus, we get to relate to God. 
not through anything else, not through your good works, not through your charitable giving, not through your great parenting, your degrees, your work, your business, or just generally good works, mowing your neighbor's lawn, being a nice person. No, 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 no. All that is great and wonderful, and do that through Jesus. I have come. What do you want of me, Lord? What do you want of me, Lord? And Jesus' answer, see, this is where it gets almost impossible for me to explain. Take off your sandals. Let's just pray for a second. Father, I, I, I don't often do this. And Lord, I, I pray now as we move into this next point that somehow, as we have just read with Sarah, that you would give us the gift of revelation in the knowledge of you. That, Lord, that somehow we would grasp what I'm about to share, what I believe you have given me for this morning in such a way, Lord, it would change our lives, Christians or those who are just seeking and thinking. Lord, I pray that you'll be part of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Take off your sandals. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. See, Joshua, what you are doing is not good enough. Take your shoes off. (laughs) Take your shoes off. Why? Because, Joshua, you are created and I am the creator. You are sinful and I am perfect. You are weak and I am all-powerful. You are mortal, Joshua. I am forever. You are unclean. I am holy. The ground that you stand on is holy ground because I am here, Joshua. I have come. I am the great I am. The fact, Joshua, that you are still alive is a miracle in itself. The fact that you are in my presence Because all through the Old Testament, what we get faced with is this. And we don't like this, but it's true. And I will show you why. That God is fiercely holy. Fiercely holy. See, we don't like the idea of God being a holy God. We say it, but we don't like it. What we like is caring, warm, fuzzy grandpa God. We like that. Merciful, patient, loving, kind. And he is, apart from the grandpa part, he, he is, he is a father. He's got a dad's heart, a papa's heart, an abba's heart. He is all that. But can I tell you, the same scripture that speaks powerfully to that also speaks very loudly to the point that God is fiercely holy and one actually magnifies the other. Because the holiness of God highlights how incredible it is that he would love a sinner like me. Because he is the creator and I am the created. I am imperfect. He is perfect. And so through Jesus we get to relate to God. It is phenomenal. And can I tell you that if you do away with the holiness of God, then you are lacking the understanding that, the, that God's holiness actually results in life transformation. So to dismiss God and make God just something that is loving and kind and come to him because he loves you is 100% true. But God is holy is also 100% true. And so if we dismiss that and don't think about the holiness of God, the fact that Joshua hits the deck and that Jesus is there, his incredible power on display to Joshua, if we just dismiss his holiness, then we actually reduce and diminish the power of and the glory 
and the love of God shown on that. Because that diminishes in importance as we diminish the holiness of God. The more we look at the fierce holiness of God, the more incredible it is that he hung on a cross and died. Do you see that? So we don't like talking about wrath or sin or or anything like that because it makes people feel bad. Good! Because the more they feel bad, the more likely they are to worship the God who loved them so much that he would die for them. I've had people leave this church on the back of preaching like that. But remember, this was my last sermon. This is the most loving thing that I can say. Because this is what we do. And it's true. We do it all the time. We set our own goodness up in comparison to others. So this is what we do. We go, well, I'm not as bad as them. So God's going to let me into heaven because, have you seen that? Because compared to that, I'm pretty dang good. Thank you very much. But God doesn't say that. He says, I'm not comparing you to that. I'm comparing you to me, the God Almighty. And we fall short, the scripture says, by a long way. By a long way. And so as we compare ourselves to others, we increase in our own holiness. As we compare ourselves to God, we become overwhelmed, we hit the ground, and we say, I need him. Because I will never get to him without him. I need him. So the question I have is, is really, really simple. And it's not... You see, when, when we come to Jesus, it's not an intellectual decision. Please hear this. Those of you who maybe have been brought up in a Christian family and see yourself as a Christian because that's who we are, if you have not had a moment, not an intellectual decision, but a moment when you have hit the ground in your desperate need and realization as to how far separated you are from the holiness of God then I wonder whether you've had a take-your-shoes-off day. Do you remember that day when you took your shoes off? Metaphorically speaking. When you went, I am, like the scripture says, woe is me, I am broken. I need you, because without you, I will be separated from you. It's not like, God, I need you to come and figure things out. Help me in my name. Now, to a certain degree, we come to God, we start exploring God through that lens. That's okay. Well, I need something in my life. That's all right. But there will be a day. There will be a moment. Now, some of you kind of almost were born Christians. Like you cannot remember that time when you became a Christian. It was just it was. But you will still have that moment when you took your shoes off. Do you have that day? The realization that He is eternal and perfectly holy. The realization that there's nothing you can do to get close to that perfection. The realization that outside of his forgiveness and the cross and Jesus, that you will be eternally separated. Did you have the day when you took your shoes off? So this is a fiercely holy God. So what happened to God in the New Testament? It's almost like God was in a really bad mood in the Old Testament. And then we move into the New Testament. He's got some counseling. He's maybe gone on a retreat or two done some contemplative prayer, and he's like, you know what? It's all good. Do you know what happened in the New Testament? Do you know what happened in the New Testament? I have come. Jesus came. And Jesus took everything on the cross, all that is owed to you and me, and he died with him, and he forgives us, and we can all have our take our shoes off day. 
And if you think about God and His holiness, this is what I mean, as you think about the holiness, His love becomes even more incredible because the reality is this, is if you think about God who literally carved the universe, the scripture says that Jesus who holds the universe by, in the palm of His hand, that, that, that it's upheld by the power of His word, that if we see God as that, incredibly holy, incredibly powerful, it becomes utterly ridiculous that we see God as some eternal Siri. Siri, Siri, hey, Siri, if you're me, this is what I'm like when I'm driving on my iPhone. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then that, that, it's, a, it's a long conversation. Hey, hey, Siri, Siri, oh gosh, do they want an American accent? Hey, Siri. I mean, it's ridiculous, sorry. It, it's ridiculous, but we kind of see God like this. God, come and help me with my agenda. Come help me. Come and join me in my army, Lord. Come, come and join my, me in the issues I have in my family. Come and join me in the issues in my business, in the issues of my relationship. Come, come join my agenda before me. Hey, God. Hey, hey, God. And we put conditions on him. and says, I will hit the ground if. That's not the way it works. He is a holy, holy God. Let's not diminish him. How we come to him, let's not belittle the enormity of who he is. And he has the unbelievable, loving, audacious love to go through my son Jesus. You can, you can come to me. His perfection and holiness make his love even more amazing. And yet we come with conditions. And so here's, let me finish with this. As we move into communion and we're going to share together. There's a really important aspect to this verse and it is this. Standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Swords are all through scripture. There's three really major parts where swords turn up and and, and I'm finishing with this. And think about communion in this respect. The first time we see a sword is at the... Uh, is at the, kind of the, the, the entrance to the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve have been rejected, the sword is there to stop them entering the garden, the rest, the presence of God. You are now separated, and you will not pass. Another time, as we've seen it today, is the Lord's army here, that Jesus is stood with a drawn sword. Not, a, not, a, not put away, drawn And there's another time when we see Jesus with the sword in Revelation. You see, Jesus has a sword. And if you go back in the Old Testament, this is very, this is where this is grounded. It starts actually with Abraham, where God tells Abraham to cut animals in half, walk through them, that this covenant, this splitting, this walking through the blood, being covered by the blood, the sacrifice of animals, that God will take that and start a new covenant, a new life with Abraham, that you could come into my presence, Abraham, because of the spilt blood of the animals. And then another time is in Egypt when they actually put, they, they killed lambs and, and the lamb went under the sword and the blood of the lamb was put around the doorpost, which is where they get their Passover, the first verse we read. And so they literally lived under the blood of the lamb. And so the angel of death was passed over them and they would not be killed. And so the sword, the lamb was put under the sword. And here's what's incredible is that the scripture tells us that Jesus, the lamb of God, who went under the sword... So you and I could live under the protection and forgiveness and and joy of the blood of the Lamb. 
So where do we find our courage? How can anything fill us with fear when the God of eternity loves us, accepts us? What can be done against us? If we stand before God, then what in the world can we be afraid of? What in the world would stop us taking steps and risks and talking to people about Jesus and and doing those courageous things, those things that fill us with fear? If we got a clear understanding of the fierce holiness of God, the immense love of Jesus who would go under the sword to bring us closer to God, then really there is nothing that can stop us. There's nothing that can fill us with fear if the one who truly brings holy fear into our lives says, Come, your mind through my son Jesus. Through my son Jesus. Courage comes from understanding that. And I wonder whether we've come to grips with that self. See, the Bible says that to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. See, courage comes from understanding that the most powerful person in the universe loved us with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength, all his mind. And if that person, Jesus, loves us that much, that when we come to these elements that really are rooted in the Passover and the blood of Jesus and, the, and, and, the, and His body broken for us, as we remember this, that the most powerful person, the power behind the universe,